This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. responses to say, oh, but there are externalities to smoking, um, because you know, the, the smoker imposes cost on the non-smoker, both in terms of long-term health consequences and short-term aesthetic concerns, like the smell of the smoke or the smell of the smoke on the clothes the next day. And, but in, in a way, the libertarian could say, well, it's not really an externality. It's, it's not at all, because um, when you, 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 if, if the Smoker just showed up in your apartment smoking. That that would be an externality without your permission. But uh, there is this intermediary of the bar owner or the restaurant owner who is choosing to permit there to be smoking, and then you are choosing to go and patronize this establishment. You don't have to go, so you are within the transaction that involves smoking. Just like 
you go to a place that has country western music, you can't say, oh, I hate country western music, that's an externality. No, it's part of the cost of going to this bar that you agree to, like paying the, for the drinks. And so it's, it's an internal cost. It's not an external cost. And you know, if you don't like it, then you don't have to go to the bar. Uh, so we might think that the outcome uh, is likely then efficient, as long as there's, there's a, sort of a, a free market that's going on in this. And I forget what the next uh, thing is. Oh, yeah, now some people would complain and say, oh, but before there were bans on smoking bars, there were almost no non-smoking bars. Perhaps there were none in a given area. And therefore, there must be something wrong. Well, there could be some, maybe there's something wrong, but you can't just know there's something wrong because there are no non-smoking bars. In that, it could be that smokers care a whole lot more than non-smokers about this, that that smokers will stay at home, non-smokers will just grumble and go and buy their drinks, in which case the market is simply responding to the intensity of preferences like it would do uh, for you know, the music that they play uh, while it's going on. Now, here let me illustrate graphically, this might be why you, didn't go, why you went to law school and not some graduate program, but I'm going to try to uh, uh, illustrate this libertarian <coughs> argument graphically. And let's just start ignoring the curves and just look at the, the axes here. So this is the percentage of establishments permitting smoking. Uh, if it were 50, if we had, say, 100 bars and 50 of them permitted smoking, we'd be here in the center. Then notice this. If you were uh, a bar that was, that was non-smoking and you decided to become the 51st smoking bar, that would cause a shift to the right because you'd be increasing the percentage of establishments permitting smoking. If you were, we were at 50-50 and you're one of the non, one of the smoking bars and you decide to become non-smoking, that would be a shift to the left. We'll go from 50 to 49. Um, on the vertical axis, we just have net revenue. Now we look at the curves. The fact that the curves are different, first of all, tells us the revenue curves uh, of operating these establishments tells us that it's an important factor in your revenue whether you allow smoking or not. The fact that the smoking curve is most of the time higher than the non-smoking curve tells us that this is a jurisdiction in which the smokers apparently care a lot more about this than the non-smokers, which means you know, that there's more revenue to be uh, had by catering to uh, the smokers. Now, um, we have here an, e what, an equilibrium. It's the only place where the curves cross, and it's an, it is an equilibrium what we mean by an equilibrium is that at this point, no bar owner has any incentive to change whatever it is they're doing. If they're non-smoking, they don't want to change. If they're smoking, they don't want to change. We see this because if you were here and you were a smoking establishment and you were thinking about shifting to non-smoking, remember that would mean a shift to the left as you decrease the percentage of, of establishments permitting smoking. And if you were shifting to non-smoking, you'd be on this red curve, which means you'd be going down. And you don't want your revenue to go down. On the other hand, if you're a non-smoking establishment and you were going to switch to smoking, you would be shifting to the right, but you'd be on the smoking curve and that's going down. So that's why this is an equilibrium, is because any move, any move by an individual bar would be a, a move towards less revenue. So you wouldn't do it, so it's an equilibrium. It appears to be the only equilibrium, and the libertarian argument might be captured by just saying, you know, this is a kind of supply and demand, uh, or this 
not really a supply demand curve, but this is this is showing you there's only one way, one one percentage of establishments being smoking that uh, meets the market demand as measured by the revenue generated uh, by these patrons. All right, but um, the response to the to the libertarian it begins by saying there is no necessary reason why we have to have only one equilibrium. There's nothing that guarantees that there is only one equilibrium. When we look out there in the world and we say, oh, we have no smoking, uh, no non-smoking bars, that might not be because that's the only way that a free market could respond to the existing uh, preferences of smokers and non-smokers. Uh, here we have these, these curves intersecting three times. Let me first show you why this middle point, which I'll call incorrectly an inflection point, is not an equilibrium. It's not an equilibrium because if I'm here and I am a uh, non-smoking establishment and I'm thinking about shifting to smoking, that means a move to the right and my revenue goes up. But if I'm here and I'm, I'm a, a, a smoking establishment and I'm thinking about becoming non-smoking, I go shift to the left. I go up there too. So no matter what happens, you increase revenue by moving away from the, by an individual moving away from this point. So it's not an equilibrium. It just happens to be a place where the curves cross, but it's not an equilibrium. By contrast, these two points are exactly like the single equilibrium that we that I showed on the prior slide. Um, they're, they're situations in which you know if you're at this point, then. Uh, you know, if you, you don't want to change from whatever you are, because if you do, your revenue will go down. And the crucial thing is that there are, there are two of them. Um, if you could go backwards, Tom. Um, now let me introduce informally an idea of path dependency. This shows where there is no path dependence, because no matter where you start, you'll end up here. So strangely, imagine we just randomly uh, forced uh, the bars to uh, be smoking or non-smoking. We picked a number between 1 and 100. We assigned smoking or non-smoking to some random number adding of, of, of bars. And then on day two, we say, do whatever you want. This predicts that they'll wind up, no matter where they start, they'll wind up in the same place. Because if you're over here and you're non-smoking, then you say, gee, if I went to smoking, my revenue would go way up. So. So bars will want to go smoking, which pushes them over here. They'll keep one of switching from non-smoking to smoking until they reach this point. Similar, uh, by contrast, we started over here. Then it turns out that the uh, smoking establishments would say, gee, if I switched to non-smoking and captured this little niche market, I would increase my revenue, and they would go back to here. I, I didn't mean you. OK, sorry. All right. Hard to good help these days. <laughs> it's been fun working on this paper with a group of three. And, uh, we're obviously, uh, you know, seamlessly sort of, you know, whatever. Um, okay, so now if we go to whether two equilibrium, it's like you read my mind. Um, the, uh, it turns out that we have path dependence because where we end up depends on where we started. If we start, first I'll just tell you this and then I'll try to explain it. If you start anywhere to the left of this inflection point, you will wind up in this equilibrium. If you start anywhere to the right, you'll wind up in this equilibrium. So you could imagine two points that were very, very close to each other, sort of an arbitrary difference of starting points, 
that results in a very large difference uh, in, in, in ending points of what which equilibrium that you meet. And that's, I mean, I, I, I guess I did explain that in, in that, you know, um, you know, if you're slightly to the right of this uh, point, then um, uh, and and you're 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 non-smoking, then uh, you're, you will increase your revenue by switching to smoking, and uh, and and this will eventually take you to that point. If you're to the left, it will eventually take you to that point. Now, what does this mean normatively? Uh, it means that we can no longer rely on the argument that says that we must be at the efficient point because we have pre-exchange and we've just arrived at this number of uh, smoking and non-smoking establishments because we don't know that there isn't another equilibrium out there also consistent with free market exchange and the existing preferences that we might have arrived at had we started at a different point. We picked smoking because we're thinking, well, what is the point we started at? We started at a point where no one really thought smoking was harmful, the smoking was very uh, percentage was very high, the norms were very strong to tolerate smoking all the time. So, of course, if there are two equilibria, we probably wound up in the high smoking equilibria rather than a low smoking equilibria. Um, and, uh, of course, this doesn't prove, nothing I've said proves that the low smoking equilibria is superior to the high smoking <coughs> equilibria. That requires some additional argument, and it's not our papers, you know, it's not the point of our paper to you know, identify these arguments. We sort of mention a, a, a number of reasons why people might prefer the low smoking equilibrium to the high smoking equilibrium. The main point is that you, you can just no longer make this assumption that the structure of the market being competitive, the outcome must be efficient because there's another possibility. All right, if you'll skip, I think I've made, uh, I'll, you can skip all this. One of the questions that you might ask is, why would there be multiple equilibria? Um, I, I, I'm guessing we'll spend more time talking about this. I'm not, we, we must give like 10 reasons in the paper. Um, uh, half of them, or some of them, are rational choice accounts. Some of them are, are behavioral accounts. So the rational choice accounts, I'll, um, I'll just give one example in the interest of uh, letting you hear from someone else soon. Um, and, and that is uh, uh, bar hopping. Um, so there might be network effects caused by, by bar hopping. Suppose you have a college town, it has 20 bars, most of the patrons are um, in, their, in their 20s, and, when, and, and most of the nights they go out, they like to go to multiple bars. Let's just say the number is four. They like to go to four bars. Now, the cost that the non-smokers perceive, let's say the main cost they perceive is that their clothes reek at the end of the night, and they don't like that. However, it only takes 30 minutes of exposure to make their clothes reek. That means that if you have 20 bars and they're all smoking and one entrepreneur decides to become the one non-smoking bar, will he attract the non-smokers while the non-smokers pile in? Well, no, because they're going to go to three other bars that night. The other three bars are smoking. Their clothes are going to reek. There's no gain in going to the non-smoking bar, not unless there are a bunch of them. But for any one individual, you don't have an incentive to, to shift because your revenue won't go up. So that would be an example where you might then have multiple equilibria. You could have a bunch of bars that are non-smoking, or you could have zero bars that are non-smoking, and they're both consistent with free exchange and the existing preferences. We give some other examples. Maybe we'll talk about them later. Behavioral accounts. So 
Um, you know, the rational choice accounts are assuming that people are perfectly rational, perfectly selfish. They're, they're, they're described by homo economicus. The behavioral accounts uh, refers to a large literature that uh, look, looks at how people actually behave in experiments and how they deviate in certain specific ways from the perfectly rational uh, uh, prediction. And many of these uh, things tend to favor the status quo so that it's easy to have some stickiness to multiple positions. Now, Tom, if you go to the next uh, one, I'll give a couple of examples. So one is the availability heuristic. When people estimate the frequency of things, they tend to overestimate the frequency of things that are psychologically available or salient, readily called to mind, and underestimate when uh, they're not so readily called to mind. Um, you might imagine if you have a smoking bar and the bar owner thinks, well, I make more money if I switch to non-smoking. He says, well, I'll lose smoking customers and I'll gain non-smoking customers. What's the net effect? Well, the availability heuristic would suggest he'll overestimate the number of smokers he'll lose because they're available because he knows them. They're in his, they're in his uh, bar all the time. He knows them by name. He knows that they won't come back if he doesn't allow smoking. The non-smokers are abstractions, and it's, they, they tend to be underestimated. Of course, if we flip it around and he had a non-smoking bar for a long time, then the opposite would be true. He would overestimate how many non-smokers would cease to come in, underestimate how many smokers would come in, so you could have these multiple uh, equilibria. Um, let's uh, go on to the next page. Um, so, let's... Uh, um, so endowment effect. Let's just talk about this one. Uh, you might imagine that you know part of the cost of running a smoking or non-smoking establishment has to do with how you uh, how, you know what kind of employee employees you can get, and it turns out that smoking employees usually prefer uh, to work in a smoking establishment because they can then smoke you know in the workplace more readily than if it's a non-smoking place. But you might imagine that. Uh, if they require some sort of wage adjustment for not getting their preference about unsmoking in either direction, you might imagine it would be the same wage adjustment, you know, no matter what your starting point was. But the endowment effect suggests that people value more highly the rights or entitlements they already own, and they value less, the, the, they're willing to pay less for the, to acquire the, the rights or entitlements they don't already own. So smoking employees might value the right to smoke at work more when they already have it. So when they're in the equilibrium where there are all these smoking establishments, the employees you know, suggest that they will demand a huge increase in their wage if they're going to, if you're going to turn it into a non-smoking place. Um, but when, they, when it is a non-smoking place, uh, they don't, they're not really willing to make a huge concession on their wage in order to have the owner shift to smoking. And the same thing would be true told from the perspective of the non-smoker. So again, this is a reason why you could get the multiple equilibria like, like we were describing. You got You're calling it? I'm calling okay. it. Okay. Uh, all right, great, thank you. Tom, can you go back to the, okay, wait, then forward and now back again. No, no, forward. Sorry, no, I'm, just, I'm just joking. <laughs> Okay, great. Thank you very much, Richard. So I'm going to talk about the sort of temporary law piece. So Richard's given us the multiple equilibrium piece, and I'm going to talk about the temporary law piece. And let me just motivate this with a very kind of real-world uh, thought experiment. So 
There was a time back in the day when Chicago did not have a smoking ban. Uh, I lived in Chicago at that point. I don't know if any of you lived in Chicago at that point and were of age that you could go to bars. Uh, but I was, and we, my wife and I were actually childless, so we left the house every once in a while. And so we went to a lot of bars, and let me tell you, every single one of those bars allowed smoking. I'm not going to claim that every single bar in the city of Chicago allowed smoking, because I didn't try all of them out, but I think that some enormous percentage of bars in Chicago allowed smoking back then. Now Chicago has a smoking ban. We could do the same thing for the state of California if you want to. And so let me ask you, what do you think would happen if Chicago repealed its smoking ban tomorrow? Do you think that every bar would flip back and start allowing smoking again? It seems totally implausible that that would happen, right? It seems much more likely that we'd have more than 0% of bars allowing smoking, which is what we've got right now under the ban, but fewer than 100%. And the reasons are all the reasons that Richard gave. So people, non-smokers, have become used to the idea of being able to go out to bars and not have to have their clothes reek and breathe smoke all night, and they would be really reluctant to give that up. Employees might be really reluctant to give that up also. Owners have gotten used to having all their non-smoking customers coming in and thinking of those people as regulars. Smokers have gotten used to you know, going out on the street to smoke or somewhere else or dealing with it somehow. People have adapted to the new reality in a lot of ways, and so it's going to make that new reality sticky to some degree. We're not going to just snap back to 100% of bars allowing smoking the way it used to be. The city of Urbana actually sort of unwittingly ran this experiment a few years ago. They had a smoking ban in place, and then the smoking ban was repealed. Tom and Richard uh, spent a number of hours doing research. Uh, where <laughs> we paid students as well to and, do research. Sorry, and, and paying students to do research where they would sit in these bars, uh, you know, drink, although the drinking was purely to blend in, not for pleasure, as I understand it. <laughs> you know, talk to patrons about their experience under the smoking ban and afterwards, and talk to the bar owners. And sure enough, lots and lots of the bar owners in Urbana, um, I guess it was Champagne, actually, right? Yeah. Champagne, sorry. Champagne, the neighbor city to Urbana. Lots of the bar owners in Champagne were not switching back after the ban was repealed for a lot of the reasons that we sort of described in the paper. Okay, so if all that's true, then we've got reason to believe that we have multiple equilibrium, that we're living in this kind of a world where there are two points we could become stuck at in the absence of regulation, not just one. So why temporary law? If we had perfect information, if we knew everything about the world, we wouldn't need any sort of temporary law. We would just, we would know what this equilibrium is. We would know, okay, there's a high smoking equilibrium where 90-something percent of bars allow smoking, and there's a low smoking equilibrium where maybe 25% of bars allow smoking. We would know which of those is better. You know, we could measure total bar revenues or total number of hours that people spend in bars, or we could deduct, you know, cases of lung cancer or something like that. And we would just create a law mandating one of those two equilibrium. So maybe, we, let's say, we issue, we have the city of Chicago issue licenses such that there are enough licenses that 20% of the bars in the city could become not, uh, smoking, and the rest would have to be non-smoking because they couldn't buy a license. And the bars could all trade those licenses back and forth. Or maybe we find that there's the equilibrium at zero, that that's optimal, we would just ban smoking or whatever. That's if we have perfect information. But of course, we almost never have perfect information. I mean, I strongly suspect that if we repealed the Chicago smoking ban, we'd stop somewhere short of 90-something percent of bars allowing smoking. But I have no idea where. And I'm also not, I'm far from perfectly confident that we stop short. I mean, I can't, we can't know that for certain. The key to temporary law is that it allows us to reveal exactly that sort of information. It tells us, number one, whether there is another equilibrium, and number two, where that equilibrium is located. And then, once we find the other equilibrium, we can figure out whether it's better or not. So, let's say before the Chicago smoking ban, we're living over here at a high smoking equilibrium, you know, maybe over here. 
we passed the smoking ban, now we're stuck at zero smoking. And then we repeal the smoking ban, a temporary law. We, we repeal the ban, we say to the bars, just as Richard suggested, okay, go do whatever you want to. Well, right now, the revenue from being, we're at zero smoking, the revenue from being a smoking establishment is higher, so we're gonna move along these curves, as Richard described, and we're gonna get stuck at some equilibrium. And that's when things will stop, and no bar will have an incentive to shift back and forth. So, the fact of the temporary law reveals to us whether or not we have some other equilibrium, and it shows us where that equilibrium is. We just let the temporary law lapse, and then we wait until things aren't changing anymore, and then we observe the world. So what's crucial about a temporary law, I think a lot of people think of temporary law as a way to see what the world looks like when the law is in effect. Like, let's pass a smoking ban and see what the world looks like under a smoking ban. And that's true, that can be useful. That tells us something about a world in which there is zero smoking in bars. But we think of temporary law as crucially important because it reveals what happens after the smoking ban is lifted. We care not so much about what goes on while the smoking ban is in place, but what takes place after that smoking ban has disappeared. Um, in that it will tell us if there's another market equilibrium, and then that equilibrium might be a better one. We can measure how that equilibrium compared to where we were before the ban was in place. And so that's why we talk about this as path dependence, right? What we're interested in is not just sort of what the world looks like when we change the law, but what the world looks like under the same legal conditions but a different starting point, right? The same legal conditions could be no ban whatsoever, no smoking ban, no regulation, but the starting point might be different. The starting point for Chicago in the year 2000 was 100% smoking, because there had never been a time when smoking was banned. If we lifted the ban now, the starting point would be zero smoking, and then we would move somewhere else. So the key advantage of temporary law is that it might reveal this information to us. If we just used a permanent law, you know, a standard type of regulation, we risk trapping ourselves in something suboptimal, you know, forever, and we'd never know whether it was suboptimal or not. So, you know, I'll say for myself, I really like the smoking ban. I think it's a good thing for the city and to think for the people to go out and patronize bars and restaurants. But it's not clear that the full smoking ban is better than a world in which, let's say, 20% of bars allow smoking, so that smokers do have some places they want to go. Um, but we'll never find out, because we have a permanent smoking ban, we're sitting in it, and so we're never going to learn anything else about other states of the world. So permanent law, you better hope you're getting it right, because if you're not getting it right, you haven't told yourself anything about anything else in the world, and you're never going to have any other sort of experiment run, you're stuck there. You're stuck there until you decide to repeal that permanent law. Temporary law, the whole point of it is going to tell us something about the world. Now, every temporary law will give us some sort of information about some other equilibrium. So let's say we're in a world in which 95% of bars allow smoking, we pass a temporary ban, we lift the ban, and we discover a new equilibrium at 5% of bars allowing smoking. You know, the bars travel along, people switch, people switch until we get to 5%, and then there's a stoppage. There could be other equilibria, frankly. There could be an equilibrium at 50-50, there could be an equilibrium at 60-40, bars allowing smoking. So all we've done is we've found one more equilibrium. It might be, if we think that there's an even greater advantage to being somewhere else, maybe we should pass another type of smoking rule where we mandate 60-40 smoking or 50-50 to see if we can discover a third <coughs> equilibrium between the other two. You could, in theory, kind of do this infinitely. Every temporary law allows us to discover maybe one more equilibrium. We can learn something else about how the world works at that type of equilibrium. Um, but that raises one of the costs of doing this, which is to say every time you pass a temporary law and then repeal it, you've got all kinds of costs associated with that law. You've got the costs of enacting the law. You've got the costs of all the people complying, switching back and forth. I have to you know, hire, maybe hire new employees who don't want to work in a smoke-free environment or don't want to work in a smoking environment. I have to change the signage. I have to buy new furniture, you know, the ventilation system, whatever else. 
Um, their informational costs, we have to educate the population that they're not allowed to go out and smoke. We have to get the police officers to enforce smoking bans, not enforce smoking bans, or whatever else. Lots and lots of costs involved. So you don't want to play this game infinitely. You only want to play it if you think that there's really another equilibrium out there, that the market is trapped somehow because of all the behavioral factors that we discussed earlier. So that's, those are the costs involved. But there are also lots of other benefits to temporary law, right? Imagine the sort of political conversation. Let's suppose we lived in a world in which uh, people on both sides could have like honest political conversations with each other. So just dream with me for a second, right? <laughs> You know, people, libertarians might say, I'm opposed to this smoking ban because, you know, you're taking away my liberty to smoke, and I think that the market is uh, achieving the right outcome. And people, uh, you know, now libertarians might say, no, smoking is bad, we need to protect people from smoke, etc. Temporary law is the compromise position. It tests both sides' positions. If the libertarians really believe that the market will demand that everyone allow smoking, then let's have a temporary law, let's lift that law, and let's see what happens, right? And if other people who reject smoking really think that people would prefer to be in non-smoking bars if that were an option, that the market is messed up somehow, let's have a temporary law and see if that's actually the case. So it's politically easier in that regard also. Um, and then there are a number of other sort of advantages along that sort. It, it's, it's a less intrusive in, in interference in people's lives. If we believe in sort of liberty as a value unto itself, Better to have a regulation that only lasts a couple of years than a regulation that lasts you know, forever or decades upon decades. So there are lots and lots of reasons to prefer temporary law, especially if you think that this is something that the market could, in theory, get right, but that there are multiple points at which the market you know, might be settling at any given moment. Um, and so, so we think that there are lots of different advantages, lots of different reasons to prefer temporary law. And temporary law is something that could be very useful in general, but we think that temporary law is really extraordinarily useful and extraordinarily important when compared with a permanent type of law precisely in those situations where we think that there might be path-dependent effects and that those path-dependent effects might be creating the possibility of multiple equilibrium. Okay, so, Tom, it's all you. All right, I'm going to stay seated because I can't trust these guys with the equipment. <laughs> True. Um, you know, one question you might have is what's the domain of this law? How, uh, you know, what kinds of problems will it solve? Well, obviously, um, multiple equilibria aren't always to be found. Uh, and the conditions which uh, Professor Mazur just mentioned about, you know, not really having an idea about what the appropriate level of any activity is, is certainly one, uh, one kind of condition where we, would, um, we might want to have this. Now, I really do have to go through a lot of these slides to get to the extensions. Um, well, think about some other problems where we use, um, we use temporary law. One might be, um, you know, if you were to go down to the basement of this law school, and I encourage you to do this every once in a while, um, and take a look at the class of 1960, well, what does it look like? Does it look like the class that's in the room today? Not at all, right? It's a class that's exclusively or mostly white males, maybe a couple of women, maybe a minority or two. Um, now, why, why was this? Is this, um, this was an equilibrium. At that point, there was no overt or maybe even no covert discrimination going on in emissions. I don't know about the latter, but certainly no overt law that was requiring that uh, you know, women and minorities not go to law school and not enter the labor market. Um, what was likely happening is that there had been a long period of maybe some overt discrimination and a lot of covert discrimination, which affected people's incentives to invest in their human capital. And so that uh, you know, even taking away a, a scheme of overt discrimination, you're not going to see the equilibrium shift to what we would might think would be more efficient, right? We might think, given the distribution of brains, that we'd have roughly you know half the class would have been women in 1960 if um, things had been truly open and if uh, if if the optimal equilibrium perhaps had been reached. 
So how do we deal with that problem? Well, obviously, we use affirmative action. That's a way to tackle these kind of problems. And if you think about it, affirmative action is framed, or best framed perhaps, as a kind of temporary intervention. Uh, you see this most notably in uh, Justice O'Connor's opinion in Grutter v. Bollinger in 19, uh, 2003, which says, you know, we'll look again in 25 years and we'll evaluate conditions to see whether affirmative action is still, uh, still appropriate. Uh, in international law, there is a convention against racial discrimination, but there's an exception within that convention for affirmative action, right, in order to, uh, to redress past wrongs and past, uh, past bad equilibria, if you will. Um, but it's quite clear that in that convention that you can't have permanent um, uh, quotas or anything like that. And by the way, this is, it also suggests why quotas might be a bad way to deal with affirmative action. We don't actually know in every, any given year what the particular distribution of talent is in the pool. If you use a quota, um, then you're basically saying we know what the numbers are. We know that the percentage of the class should look like this. Uh, and, and that reflects the underlying, you know, distribution of talent. Um, it's, you know, we I tend not to use quotas, and they tend to uh, be illegal um, in many contexts, precisely because we want the freedom to adjust to market conditions. We want, uh, we want a softer rule. Um, but I think affirmative action, it does have the quality of being a kind of, oops, temporary law. Boy, I blew it. I went all the way through, and then I went back. All right, let me just give some other examples. <laughs> seatbelt laws. When you get in the car, you know, you put on a seatbelt. Most of you. Maybe some of you don't. It is a law uh, that you, you have to do so. Um, when they first adopted seatbelts in the 1960s, um, people were very resistant to wearing seatbelts. They felt uncomfortable. It wasn't a natural thing to do. So um, the initial response was to have what they called technology-forcing regulations to essentially have what are called passive restraints. You may have been in one of these cars that they had a few years ago, my parents bought one, where you get in the car and then the seatbelt comes over you, you know, but you have no control over it. Very irritating. People didn't like those. Uh, people didn't, and, um, airbags as a response to the, this problem also, but airbags are really expensive. It'd be far better if you could convince people to put on seatbelts. So how did they deal with this? Well, um, obviously they passed a permanent law requiring seatbelt usage. In a way, that's a paternalistic law, right? It may be that some of you really would be more comfortable without wearing a seatbelt, and we should let you be free. We should be libertarian about this. But we think that if no one wears seatbelts, that's really going to you know, have some major public health consequences. So this might be a case where you could have had a temporary law saying you must wear seatbelts. Notice that um, a temporary law, which would just require seatbelts, I don't know, for 20 years, would do something very crucial in this context. It would change the social meaning of wearing a seatbelt. Back in 1960, if uh, Professor Mazur got in the car with me and I was driving, I said, put on your seatbelt, what might he say to himself? You know, Ginsburg, you know you're a bad driver? I'm mean, at risk getting in the car with you? Um, you know, why do you, and, and similarly, you know, if I put on a seatbelt and he sees me do that, he might think I'm revealing private information um, about my, the safety of my, uh, my driving. Um, and you might imagine that this would lead to an equilibrium, socially induced, where the norm would just be no one ever put on a seatbelt, right? Oh, you're one of those wusses who puts on seatbelts. You know, you, you, I'm really a good driver. You don't have to be afraid. Well, um, if you required it, of course, then everyone would get in the habit of it. It wouldn't have the same social meaning. And you might imagine that after that law was repealed or sunsetted, that you'd then have a situation where you would be able to, um, um, you know, the seatbelt use would be at a better better socially optimal level. Um, what else? Curfews. Curfews are, have a kind of similar quality. Um, and their curfews, of course, are always temporary. 
Um, they are, uh, um, you know, you might imagine, let's say, an apartment, and this is a true story, apartment building where there was a lot of drug activity and a lot of young men congregating and the police were having lots of problems with it. Well, the reason people congregate there is because everyone knows that everyone else is going to be there that night, right? And um, it's kind of a socially induced equilibrium, and we might think that it's socially suboptimal. If you could somehow break that pattern and convince people they had to go somewhere else to have fun, you know, you might uh, um, reduce the level of social harms that are associated with a particular, particular area. And so a curfew is a way of doing this. Um, you're trying to disrupt people's expectations about what will happen. Uh, another example is bank holidays, right, or um, when there's a run on a bank. Well, um, a run on a bank is a situation where it's individually rational for people to go and get their money out of the bank. Uh, and we know that this herd behavior is going to bring down the bank or maybe even the banking system. What do we do in those cases? We have a temporary ban on taking out your money or a temporary ban on trading in a particular stock where we think there is some irrationality which is driving the, uh, driving the, the shift in equilibrium. Uh, if we can just disrupt that, even temporarily, we'll allow a better equilibrium to be revealed. And so I think that there are, these things are um, not uncommon. Um, in the case of champagne, as uh, Professor Mazur said, we, there was, a, was by chance a temporary smoking ban. <laughs> ban was passed, then it was repealed, it was politically unpopular, and uh, they voted in a new city council, they repealed the ban. Uh, but it, even that repeal was very temporary because then the state passed a ban. So we have these various periods of you know, no ban at all, all bars were smoking, ban, no bars were smoking, and then a several month period when uh, bars could again smoke, allow smoking if they wanted to. What did we observe? About 60% of bars switched back. Patronage was actually higher. Uh, and so that suggests that maybe there was a better equilibrium. It was better to have higher patronage with a mix of smoking and non-smoking bars than slightly lower patronage with 100% smoking bars. And you could say this as a smoker or as, I mean, as a non-smoker, certainly, but uh, even as a smoker because it's superior to the situation that we're now in where smokers are an oppressed minority. Um, so um, with that, I think we'll stop and uh, take your questions, comments, corrections, and uh, look forward to hearing what you have to say. Yeah. said we had like maybe 10 or 8 uh, stories in the, in the paper for why there might be multiple equilibria for smoking. And I only mentioned two of them. But we, what we do say in the paper is that um, how long the temporary law needs to last depends on which of these stories is correct. A lot of them, I think, are very short term. The ones I mentioned, um, you know, like, I mean, the, the endowment effect seems like it could be very short term if you if you if you no longer own something you, you, you your value uh, for it is is lessened I think in a very short uh, time period uh, the network effect I mentioned is very short um, so I, I guess I guess we thought that almost, that everything we mentioned was probably on the order of two or three years now um, if you say um, 
if you, but 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 yeah, I mean, I I, I guess we don't really know that. Uh, yeah. So you could have a theory in which, um, yeah, there there it needs to be uh, a a generation needs to pass uh, before you can be sure that uh, that you that you know you you now can evolve to a different equilibrium if there is one. Yeah. Can I just say something about that? You know, um, Thomas Jefferson. Had a, had a theory that all laws and the Constitution itself should expire every 19 years uh, because the old majority shouldn't rule the present-day majority. The dead should never govern the living. In a way, obviously, that is a proposal for a temporary law. The new majority could readopt it, but they have to go through that process, and uh, you know, it's, it's somewhat analogous. Yeah. Right, that's a big issue. Um, well, just let me say one thing. Please, so um, obviously, uh, to get the political benefit that Professor Mazur was talking about, you need to say that it's temporary. That's to lessen the opposition, the people who are fear uh, a kind of permanent law. Um, and uh, But there is obviously the possibility of strategic behavior that would come in if you knew it was temporary. And you could just sort of hold your breath, if you will, uh, for the period that was announced. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would just say the thing we care about is that it's actually law when it's in effect. The, the fact of whether people know it's temporary or not is irrelevant. So as long as everyone actually abides, you know, if we have a smoking ban and everyone knows, okay, this smoking ban is only going to last for one year, so everyone let's just violate it and the police will all look the other way, then you don't really have a smoking ban. You don't have a law in any really meaningful sense. But even if they knew it was temporary, you know, it's not like everyone's going to say to themselves, okay, look, I'm just going to skip going to bars for the next two years while the law's in effect, change none of my habits, and then I'll resume going to bars two years from now. I, I mean, of course people are going to adapt and figure out new ways to live and patronize bars still and so forth. So as long as the law is being enforced, we think it's fine if everyone knows up front that it's temporary. Um, actually, I think we say at one point in the paper, we suggest that the way to measure the length that a law is in, in effect is not how long it's enacted kind of on paper, but how long it's actually enforced properly. Yeah, or you might have a trigger that says, you know, when... 95% of bars have been non-smoking for two years. So if you have enforcement problems, that might count as, as you know, extend the, the duration of the nominal uh, law. Yeah, in the back. Sorry. <laughs> if you pass your temporary law and find a new equilibrium, and the data that you get from that shows that this is somehow suboptimal to your first, then what? I mean, you can't really... There's no way you could pass a, a law mandating smoking. And all yeah, we could. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what we. I think that's a brilliant. You answered your own question brilliantly. That's exactly what you do. You mandate well, you smoking would, in every bar. You, wouldn't, you wouldn't mandate that individuals smoke, but you could mandate that bars permit smoking, just like we mandate that you know uh, that the bars or accommodations be you know accessible to people in wheelchairs, or we mandate. You know that they serve people of different races. We could mandate that they allow people to smoke. Do you want to turn calling on someone? <laughs> sure, Mr. Friedman. Well, so, I mean, simpler to that, I think. So, so it, it it sounds like the the length of time the law will be in effect is just as as long as it takes to get the outcome that we want. I think, and 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 I mean, so so in in some ways, it sounds like a nudge with. That 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 is is guaranteed to be successful, which sounds good, but but to me it also sounds like a nudge with, with a guaranteed outcome, and the the government is 
you know, we'll, we'll figure out what the outcome should be and then keep doing nudges till we get there. No, I think, I mean, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with that a little bit. I mean, I think that the thing that we care about is that the law actually be enforced and abided by while it's in effect. So we don't want a smoking ban that no one observes. We want a smoking ban that actually everybody observes. But once that smoking ban lapses, if every bar chooses to go back into allowing smoking, we're back in a world in which 95% of bars allow smoking, I think we would view that not as a failure of the temporary law and we turn around and say, okay, now time to pass another temporary law and see what happens then, or pass a longer temporary law this time. We would say, all right, the market has spoken. The market has told us that this is really what the people of Chicago want, and so this is probably what we should allow them to have. Right. So in the worst case, you get information. You get confirmation, uh, which might be valuable in and of itself if we didn't know. It would resolve certain public policy questions and change the debate. Well, you would falsify, you would falsify the argument of path dependence if that's what happened. So you have this argument, somebody says uh, the status quo must be efficient, somebody else says no, there's path dependence. If you have a temporary law and it's actually enforced and you have high compliance and then it, you allow it to expire and you go back to the status quo behavior, you've just falsified the, the argument for path dependence. Mm -hmm. So now you need some other argument, but, but path dependence seems not to, to be true if, if people go back to the earlier behavior. Uh, going off of the previous question about uh, the effect of the time and knowledge of the, of the time limitation on the law, what effect do you think that has for investment in thinking of the seatbelt application, where that requires some relatively extensive retooling of factories? You mentioned ventilation systems that might need to install for non-smoking. If you know that this law is only in effect for two years, does that either chill the investment necessary to fully effectuate the law? Or does that chill investment later on if people think this temporary law could be reenacted, could they could have something similar? Does it chill investment in changing processes? Yeah. I mean, it's really about switching costs, right? So if the switching costs are really, really large, then that's going to keep you maybe uh, in either the prior state or, um, as you say, uh, keep you from switching back when it would be efficient to do so. So, you know, that's a, that's a problem. The greater those switching the costs, then the more we should be um, the less we can draw from um, uh, the equilibrium that we observe after the temporary law expires, that it really is the sole efficient one or, the, um, or a more efficient one. That's going to be a lag on making that assumption a drag. Yeah. Do you think we will be required to have some sort of mechanism to assure that you're going to have at least an equal period of time of uh, non-prohibition after the initial temporary prohibition? just to make sure that you're not going to get this as a way of capturing some votes that are going to say, okay, let's go with this measure because uh, it's going to be temporary. But then you have a shift in policy or a shift in, in, in the in parliament or whatever, and you're going to have a temporary measure turn into a, a permanent one once you already change the, the starting point for, for the whole situation. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, I think that that's always a risk. You know, our idea is that we wouldn't rely on the same government coming back in to repeal the law. You'd actually write the expiration date into the law, so it would self-repeal, and then all you'd need is a blocking majority to make sure that it remains a temporary law instead of a permanent law. Um, you know, even if there's a risk, let's suppose, you know, the city passes a smoking ban, and everyone just falls in love with the smoking ban, and they're very happy with it. You know, there's conceivably a risk that we'll decide to make that smoking ban permanent as opposed to leaving it temporary. There's always a risk that circumstances will change and people will come to love something else. But 
it must be, if you're opposed to smoking bans, it must nonetheless be easier to agree to a temporary law with a risk of a permanent smoking ban coming back than it would be to agree to just a permanent law up front. So we think it will still be a, it would still be a compromise position. I'll get there. We're very sophisticated with PowerPoint. Yeah. Uh, and this is, this is related to the question about uh, strategic behavior. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if you think there might be a concern about economic actors um, sort of contractually binding themselves prior to the expiration of the, uh, of the um, temporary law. To, especially I'm thinking if this was somehow used for temporary securities regulations or something like that, whereas parties might say, I, I promise that as soon as this law expires, we're why would they do that? I mean, let, let me just let me just show one thing we did, I didn't say here, and, and that is that this equilibrium has slightly more has more revenue than that equilibrium. So, so if this is the case, and we don't know it's the case, but if it's the case, people aren't going to fight. They're going to be happy to be here. And one of the advantages we didn't mention of temporary law is when it expires, you don't have to enforce that equilibrium. You don't have to say grant grant licenses for this many places to be smoking. That's just the number of places that will choose to be smoking, and they'll be happy with it. So I don't know why they would they would necessarily uh, you know commit themselves to going going back. Um, it would you know um, it would be like saying I will you know at the end of the five year period when I'm required to wear a seatbelt, I will sign a contract that says I won't wear a seatbelt. Why wouldn't I just decide to decide then? And if it turns out that I've developed this habit and I don't even think about it, then I'd, I'd just be happy to keep keep going along with the habit. Right. And I mean, you know, if in fact there's some reason that people want to commit to going back to the old ways, you know, we're all going to agree that the minute the smoking ban expires, we all go back and allow smoking. You know, again, that just that tells us something about that defeats the argument for path dependence. It tells us something about the world. Tells us something about the market is demanding. Um, but again, it's. It's hard to imagine why they do that in the first place when they could just choose to switch later on, and you know we don't think that that's going to be very common in a lot of these situations. You know, there might be a political effect from using it too often. Getting back to Augustine's point, you know, if you if um, the polity becomes used to the argument, hey, it's just a temporary law, don't worry, uh, and then they observe that the temporary law leads to new equilibria, which are, have different distributive effects, right? Um, then you know, then the argument might not work as well. We don't know of any polity which has used this tool uh, with any regularity, at least not in the modern era. Um, and so all we're really suggesting is that government should. It's, a, it's just another tool in the toolkit of, uh, of regulation. Right. And part, and part of what we want to suggest is that these things are, to some extent, all around us. We just don't pay attention to them, you know? Hmm. I mean, we all know that if the you know, if the, if the Dow Jones drops a thousand points in a single day, there's a circuit breaker that goes off and they suspend all trading in the marketplace until the next day. You know, why would you do that if it's just, if that's what the true value of the stock market is? If it's the true value of the stock market, the next day when trading resumes, it's just going to keep going down. You can't stop anything from just suspending trading for one day. And yet that's how the markets work. And that mechanism, that very simple mechanism has actually been very successful in, um, in curbing, you know, big collapses of the, of the stock markets. And ditto for curfews, as, as Tom was describing. You know, if, if, it, if it's really the case that everyone in the neighborhood has to be on that corner at 11 p.m., then, you know, putting in a curfew for two days isn't going to have any effect at all because the minute you lift the curfew, they're all going to go back there. But the point is that these sorts of things, 
occur because of network effects between the people, because of the coordination problem that they've all decided to solve together and appearing on that corner. And all you have to do is disrupt it a little bit, just perturb it a very small amount, and all of a sudden you're going to get some new outcome. Yeah? Uh, what work do substitutes do here? So like, if you set a temporary ban saying that you don't want to smoke, you don't want smoking in bars, like, what might I say if I'm like, oh, well, I'll just use, like, dip instead? So, <laughs> oh, chew? Yeah. Chewing tobacco. Yeah, okay, yeah. 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 Okay. We call it skull. <laughs> I call it dip. <laughs> so, right, I mean, that, you know, so you can imagine, right, that might just tell us something about a new equilibrium. I'd be interested to know, you know, okay, everyone switches to dip, and then the smoking ban lapses, you know, do they stick with dip, do they go back, right, what, who knows, you could, I mean, so now you're just, what you're basically doing is adding a second dimension to this, right, so one dimension is, do you allow cigarettes, and the second dimension is, do you allow dip or chewing tobacco of some sort, and so you can imagine temporary laws along both dimensions. You know, we could have a, a period of time in which you can smoke but not dip, or dip but not smoke, or neither, or both, or whatever. And you know, we learn all sorts of things about how people behave, um, you know, in path-dependent ways after we let those temporary laws lapse. So I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think a substitute creates the possibility of sort of a second dimension. We can imagine this whole thing operating on two dimensions, or three dimensions, or even four dimensions. And if we actually thought that those were substitutes, and the people were switching back and forth between one of the two, we might want to try some of those options out. But, yeah. but I should say, I mean, as we made clear in the paper, you, you, have, you need a reason to think that there's multiple equilibria before you try this. And you need a reason to think that the other equilibrium, if it exists, is more normatively superior. So there might be an analysis that just somebody might say, well, even if there is a lower smoking equilibrium, it would be associated with a higher dip equilibrium. And... For all I, and I don't know what the health consequences are, but if you said, oh, the health consequences are three yeah. times as bad, well, then that would be a reason to say, well, let's not even try to find that other smoking equilibrium. If it's actually, if we have reason to think in advance that it's normatively worse, then we don't want to find it. You know, so that, so th that argument, th those kind of arguments would come into play in deciding whether to do this uh, at all. So I guess this might be too similar to Alan's question, but... Isn't there a concern that if a temporary law is long enough, you can impose change costs or switch costs that would be high enough to where you then change their preference the way you want it? So let's say, like, what someone asked earlier, like, let's say we want this temporary law to be a decade or two decades, but we also know that the longer the temporary law, the switch costs might increase. And I'm not sure if that's even true. But if that happens, then we don't actually know what the optimal result is. We just know we've changed their preference enough to get to what we wanted to yeah, I mean, I was thinking of switch costs as switching costs as the, the fixed cost of switching from one to another, installing the air filters, taking them out. But you know, to some extent, um, the very the very tool or the new equilibrium raises the the price of switching back. And so, in some sense, time, if we think that that's um, that the underlying function of the number of patrons sort of increases in time, who engage in let's say non-smoking behavior. Increase in time, then that would be kind of a form of switching costs. It would make it harder to move back. And this is something that we would want to take into account in setting the term. We don't have in this paper a kind of formula for determining the term. We talk about some of the parameters that one would want to keep in mind. But let me let me say, you mentioned preference change. Now, you know, in in our paper, we are not we are not talking about preference change. So it's true that once you're talking about once you imagine that the government has, uh, through law, the ability to change people's preferences, well, then you could justify almost anything in theory. You could just say, oh, we're going to make people 
you know, not want stuff so much, and then they won't lack, they won't mind not having this much stuff. Um, and um, so, so it would be too easy, I mean, to say that there's multiple equilibria all the time if we can talk about changing people's preferences. What we were talking about was assuming the same preferences but different beliefs um, and, and, I mean, just some very specific, um, you know, behavioral effects and then some network effects. So, you know, the, if you take the example about bar hopping, I mean, we're not changing people's preferences. They still want to uh, bar hop. We could still assume the smokers want to smoke, the non-smokers want to not be exposed to smoke. The preferences are equally strong. But nonetheless, there could be an equilibrium where all the bars are smoking and an equilibrium where half the bars are smoking and half are not. And, and because that way, when a lot of the bars are non-smoking, then you can bar hop among a bunch of bars, all of which are non-smoking, and, and then you get the benefits of avoiding smoke. So, um, so I, I think as soon as you get into preference, into trying to shape preferences through law, then you get into a, a, just a whole other set of, of issues about how you decide when to do that. Yeah, in the back. I know it's a bit of a tangent, but is there any indication that uh, bills or laws that are temporary pass much easier than uh, permanent laws? We have some anecdotes. Yeah. Extend the most faith to their Right. I mean, we do have some anecdotes. I mean, again, just taking an example of constitutions. In Brazil in 1988, they were fighting in drafting their constitution about whether it should be presidential or parliamentary. So what they came up with was a scheme where um, they chose presidential, but they said in five years that's going to expire. And we're going to have to have a new vote between presidentialism, parliamentarism, or monarchy, actually. They thought about going back to monarchy. Uh, and so that's an example of how you, know, you, you can write it in, and it solved the political problem. It allowed a compromise because the people who lost uh, said, well, we're going to have another chance, and people are going to see that this system doesn't work. They're going to go with our way. What actually happened is closer to the path dependency story. It turns out people were pretty comfortable with the presidential system they chose, and so they voted to keep it in. But um, you know, that's, that's just an anecdote. And we have others where, um, where sunset provisions are used uh, in order to um, achieve political compromise. In some sense, you might see this endless uh, you know, thing about the, the debt reauthorization in the United States as being repeated iterations of that. Right? We all know that next time they are going to reauthorize the debt, but it makes it easier to convince the, the crazy people um, you know, that, that they're going to have a chance to fight that next time. And uh, allows them maybe to think that they'll attract some of the po um, be able to obtain some of the political surplus next time down the road. You know, I, I have a, a one particularly good example about this, which is um, the tax cuts that uh, George W. Bush enacted during his first term. So those tax cuts were set to expire uh, after ten years, and that ten-year expiration window was a big part of how they got passed in the first place because it, it pulled in a lot of votes from people who might not have supported the tax cuts if they were permanent. It also just made them look a lot less costly to the federal fisc because you only had to measure the loss of revenues for 10 years as opposed to in perpetuity. Yeah. And at the time that they were passed, there were lots of arguments uh, made by people opposing them that they were never going to actually be temporary, that once you put a tax cut in place, everyone's going to become so attached to that tax cut that they'll never allow it to expire. Well, as it turns out, they were in the end allowed to expire in large part, um, so they did sort of function as a temporary law in that case. But there's a big major piece of legislation that probably never becomes law if it's not explicitly made temporary. And there's a professor, uh, used to be here, Jake Gerson, who wrote a paper on temporary law that really was focused on this, this you know, positive theory point that it, you know, why does it exist? And he said it was, he, you know, he more systematically found 
evidence for the fact that it allows political compromises when uh, they wouldn't otherwise be possible for a permanent law. If we view a temporary law as a uh, mechanism, information revelation mechanism, where uh, when policymakers don't have perfect information about uh, the multiple equilibrium, uh, I think uh, maybe enforcing temporary law may help reveal information about the uh, equilibrium uh, where when the temporary law is in, in in place, but that might or might not deviate from the ideal equilibrium that uh, policymakers have in mind. So like, what are the steps that need to be taken from enforcing one temporary law and reveal some information to actually achieving the ideal equilibrium that like policymakers want to have? I mean, in a way, the figure shows it well. Yeah. I mean, so we're, you know, our, our thought is just, you know, if you're, if you're here, and then you have a temporary law at zero, and then it expires, then you'll go back to, to the low smoking equilibrium if there is one, if you're right about there being one. So it's not, I mean, we're assuming the optimal one is one that would be chosen with free exchange, but only with the right starting point. And so the, the, the advantage is we don't have to know exactly where it is. Uh, if we did know exactly where it was, I mean, as Professor Mazur said, we would just say, oh, the, the low smoking equilibrium is one with 30% smoking, we'll just uh, license 30% of bars to have smoking, we'll get there, and we're immediately in one step, we never have the, uh, the temporarily inefficient uh, law of zero, which we know is, is almost certainly inefficient, we never have that. But, so it's not about knowing, it's not about what they think is, is, is optimal, it's, it's about, you know, um, whether there really is another equilibrium that is normatively better, uh, and then finding it. Yeah. Another way. So another way of saying this is, you need some other kind of. Just because you're sitting in an equilibrium doesn't tell you whether that's good or bad or better or worse than where you were. You need some other sort of mechanism. So you've got to measure bar revenues, which is what we've got up there, or you measure number of hours that people spend in bars, or you measure number of cases of lung cancer, or like something, right? Or some combination of all of those. You know, you put them all into a cost-benefit analysis and turn out a number. And you know, one way of thinking about it is, if you pass a temporary law, at some, at some sense you're going to learn about three states of the world. You're going to learn about the equilibrium you were in. You, know, you can take a measure of the equilibrium you were in before you pass the temporary law. You can take a measure of what the world looks like while the temporary law is in effect. And then you can take a measure of the equilibrium you wind up at after the temporary law has la lapsed. And then you can compare those three states in the world, and you can decide which of those three you like better. And so it's revealing a lot of information to the policymakers. And then, once they've figured out which is best, if necessary, you can implement a permanent law to entrench, you know, to, to lock that one in. Okay, I think we're done. Thank all you right. all very much. Thanks. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.